Today, more than ever, we all want to be viewed as an indispensable go-to person. However, in our current world of work, getting things done is more complex than ever. While in many companies there's a clear organizational chart, in reality, day-to-day working relationships are much more complicated. Trying to become indispensable means thinking we need to say yes to everything and everyone. But collaborating with an increasing number of people leads us to being overwhelmed and prone to burnout. How can we win influence, tackle overcommitment, and get the right things done? That's the art of being indispensable at work. For nearly three decades, my guest has followed the latest development in workplace through several long-term organizational studies on generational shifts in the workplace, best practices for leading and managing others effectively, and techniques for optimizing performance. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Bruce Tulgan, best-selling author and founder of Rainmaker Thinking. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Curvebender's book, Chapter 3, Path to Your Curvebenders. You cannot change your future, but you can change your habits, and surely your habits will change your future. APJ Abdul Kalam, aerospace scientist and 11th president of India. Have you ever thought about how to find and effectively engage your most profound relationships? Here's an idea for you. Some of your most valuable relationships in the future of how you'll work, live, play, and give, you haven't met yet. Many people die with their music still in them, remarked fireside poet and physician Oliver Wendell Holmes. Many people who fail to achieve their dreams fail because of the absence of emboldening and encouraging curvebenders in their life. Likely, you have received some critical feedback in the past. Perhaps a school report remarked that you could do better, or a supervisor advised you to work harder. It's hard to miss the underlying message. You could do more to realize your potential. But it's important here to delineate positive, constructive, and forward-moving curvebenders from relationships that are negative, toxic, or will lead you down the wrong direction. I call those fender benders, and you'll want to avoid as many of those as early in your refraction points as possible. I'll discuss them in more depth later in the book. Keep in mind that curvebenders are more than just great bosses, mentors, or partnerships who help you elevate your performance and accomplish more. Curvebenders profoundly shape our future direction. 
What is equally valuable is the person we become through a highly immersive learning and growth process. Curvebenders aren't necessarily a high-profile author or a content creator. Curvebenders are relationships we proactively seek and invest into very proactively. We give them a chance to get to know, trust, and buy into our challenges and opportunities. These individuals are incredibly productive and thus busy. They may be difficult to reach. You must be humble enough to seek them out. They often possess deep geographic, subject matter, or domain expertise, which makes them incredibly valuable relationships. They're not sitting around waiting for us to contact them. Due to their limited bandwidth and perhaps past disappointing relationship investments, they're likely extremely selective about the relationships they choose to invest in. They have a tight inner circle and invest more in their portfolio of valuable relationships. Read more of this excerpt in my forthcoming book, Curvebenders, in our blog at norgroup.com. Hi there, David Nor. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is a new friend, and I got to tell you, I was intrigued by the title of his most recent book. And Bruce Tulligan, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you. Bruce, you've got a great background. So for folks who may not know as much about you, can you briefly talk about where you've been, what you've done, and how you've arrived here? Well, you know, it all started back in the summer of love, June 1967, when I was born in the Berkshire Hills. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe more of a professional summary. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for 27 years now, we've been doing research on the front lines of the workplace, and more than a half a million people from more than 400 organizations have participated in our ongoing in-depth interviews. Uh, so we do these longitudinal interviews. We try to get people engaged in dialogue with us. We ask them, how are you being managed? How does that affect your ability to perform? Tell us about your best boss, your bosses who are not so good. What helps you do more work better and faster? What gets in your way? And uh, we're always interviewing people. Uh, we do a lot of uh, organizational assessment work for our clients. So we're always interviewing people. And when the interview data bubbles up and shows us an issue and uh, something that people are struggling with, then we sink our teeth into it. And if I can find a solution, I write a book. So what made you think about and talk about this idea of being indispensable? What, what triggered this kind of new idea for you? There's two ways to look at it. One is, of course, everybody wants to be indispensable at work. Uh, I mean, especially right now, people are actually concerned for their livelihoods and the well-being of their organizations. Everyone wants to be that indispensable go-to person. One of the puzzles that I, I found really interesting uh, that led me to write this book is the process of trying to become an indispensable go-to person that by, by trying to do that, so many people render themselves hopelessly overcommitted. And, you know, if, if your approach to becoming indispensable is you just try to say yes to everyone and everything, you try to do everything for everyone. It turns out this is a good way to make yourself burned out. And even if you're not burned out, probably not very reliable, um, much less indispensable. So I was very interested in how the go-to people, the indispensable people who stand the test of time, how do they do that? How do they make themselves so valuable to others without 
succumbing to overcommitment syndrome. That was kind of the riddle I was trying to solve. So in the book, you've got some great, great chapters and sections and key ideas. Uh, I want to tackle uh, a few. So you talk about they understand, these, these folks that are indispensable, they understand the peculiar mathematics of real influence. Talk about it a second. What happens nowadays is organizations are flattened. Uh, people have to deal with colleagues, not just their immediate boss and their immediate team, but with people up, down, sideways, and diagonal. Uh, people tell me all the time they're always having to rely on somebody across the organization. Sometimes they don't even know the person. People are always coming to them with requests from uh, all over the organization. Sometimes they don't even know the person. And so one of the things that I wanted to understand is, well, how do you operate when lines of authority are not clear? And of course, what has become conventional wisdom is, well, if you don't have authority, then you have to use influence. But then when I probed that idea and I started asking people about it, most people said, well, yeah, everyone knows if you don't have authority, you have to use influence, but tell me what the heck that means. <laughs> you know, like, what do I do? And what I found was when people try to use influence, they almost always stumble into what I call false influence or influence peddling, or these are all just poor stand-ins for authority. Like I'm not in charge of you. So what do I do? I'm, uh, do I bribe you? Do I badger you? Do I beg you? Do I flatter you? Do I try to convince you? Do I try to con you? Like when you look at people trying to use influence, almost always what happens is they're, they're using one of these forms of what I call false influence. And the irony is when you try to influence someone like influence as a verb, almost always you lose real influence. So I was trying to figure out, well, what is real influence? If, if it's different from authority fundamentally, if authority is control of rewards and punishments, and false influence is trying to leverage rewards and punishments, even though you don't have the authority, what is real influence? And what I realized was that these same indispensable go-to people who stand the test of time, who manage to be indispensable without becoming overcommitted, they're described over and over and over again by their colleagues as somebody who, well, you don't want to disappoint that person or somebody who, well, you really want to work with that person or you want to do things for that person. You want to make good use of that person's time. You want that person to want to work with you. And so what I realized was you have real influence when other people want to work with you, want to do things for you, want to make good use of your time, uh, want you to want to work with them, that your real influence lives in my brain and my real influence lives in your brain. So once I began to understand that, then I started to see that the mathematics are really peculiar. Because if I try to use influence, I lose it. But if I try to do things for you, then I gain influence. So the more I do things for others, the more my influence grows in their brains. You also talk about they know when to say no and how to say yes. What delineates the two? Yeah, and that's very much about the long game. Thank you for mentioning that because ultimately you have to play the long game of reputation. You have to play the long game of relationships. You have to play the long game of results. 
but the long game happens one moment at a time. Uh, so you have to do the right thing now to make things go better in the longer term. And so much of what we have to say to each other at work is asking each other for things, making requests of each other. And that means so often what's at stake is uh, somebody's asking you, are you going to say yes or are you going to say no? And I think a lot of people who want to be indispensable, they feel like they know they can't say yes to everyone and everything, but they feel like they can't say no either. And I think people who want to be go-to people realize that yes is where all the action is. Yes is your chance to build the relationship. Yes is your chance to add value. But you can't say yes to everyone and everything. You have to reimagine yes and no. And what you have to realize is that if yes is where all the action is, you better not waste your yeses. Because a bad yes either means you do the wrong thing or a bad yes means you promise to do something but find yourself unable to deliver. A bad yes might be a waste of time. Uh, a bad yes might get somebody's hopes up and then ultimately uh, leave them feeling very, very disappointed. And so you need no. Uh, but when people say, well, you got to learn how to say no. Uh, one of the things I've done is, you know, I've asked a lot of people, well, so does that mean you sugarcoat it or how much can you sugarcoat a no? <laughs> right? It's still no. And the secret to no is, is the long game. The trick to getting people to accept your no is if you have the reputation for making good decisions, if you have a reputation for, man, when you say no, it's for a good reason. And likewise, when you say yes, people know you're going to deliver. So every good no uh, makes space for a better yes. And uh, often the best thing you can do is stop and tune into the request, stop and tune into the ask. You don't have to skip right to yes or no. Do your due diligence. Uh, it, when somebody asks you for something, ask questions of the ask, help them fine tune the ask, uh, help them zero in on what is it exactly that they really want, when, why, and how. Uh, and, and that does two things. Number one, it helps them see how much you respect their need that you're treating their need with respect. And number two, it buys you time to make a better decision. Is this the right time to say no? Or is this going to be yes, which is a commitment and a plan? And sometimes the best answer is not yet. One of the great insights from the book that I caught on was indispensable people understand what's required and what's allowed up, down, uh, across the chain of command, and that's a real secret to success, right? So they lead from where they are and not some future aspiration of a position. That's one. The other thing is you talked a lot about they work really smart. Everybody can work hard. You talk about indispensable people really being smart about their investment of time, effort, resources when they do work. David, I love how intelligently you have read my book. Thank you, because you're connecting up ideas that not everyone sees the connection between those two things. And so, yeah, the first part of being smart is you better know what's allowed and what's required, because it turns out that what's required it's not up to you. It's required. <laughs> and, and if something's not allowed, again, it's not up to you. Part of being smart is understanding where your guardrails are. 
And so much of what's going on in the workplace today, we're trying to push collaboration down the chain of command, right? One of the mantras of the workplace today is work things out at your own level, work across silos with your colleagues, collaborate, coordinate, cooperate. But even so, somebody is in charge. And first part of working smart is you've got to use vertical alignment as your anchor. You've got to be tuned in to your boss and your boss's boss and the chain of command and the ground rules and the priorities. Because once you have a good vertical anchor, then you're free to collaborate. And so that's really the first element of working smart. And then, you know, the other piece of it, so some people who do what we do, what you and I do, you know, they'll tell people only work in your area of passion and strength. And my running joke with CEOs is, well, who's going to do all the work? (laughs) Right. You know, so uh, what I tell people is, you know, sorry, you might not be able to work in your area of passion and natural strength, but if you're going to do something over and over and over again, get good at it. And if you can't work up some passion, you can work up some strength. So anything you're going to do over and over again, because it's required or uh, because not doing it is not allowed, right? So once you have your vertical anchor, then then whatever you're going to be doing, get really good at it. That means master best practices, uh, master repeatable solutions, uh, use uh, job aids to guide you in following those repeatable solutions and best practices. Professionalize whatever you do. Even if you're the one who, who takes out the trash, do it, get great at that. Whatever you do, do it really, really well. And when you have that approach of professionalizing, making something into one of your specialties, then you also have the beginnings of being able to expand your repertoire going forward. Two other sections, finishing what you start and really promoting go-toism really resonated. But I really want to focus on they get better at working together, which obviously a topic near and dear to my heart, relationships, right? So they know... Uh, the way to build them isn't through, you know, political jockeying and, and, and just that personal rapport, the negative facet of what a lot of people think about when you say relationships. Talk about what indispensable workers do differently about relationships. What I've found is that it's become conventional wisdom that relationships are where it's at. People are what it's all about. I think that's true. But I also have seen over and over and over again when when folks rely on personal rapport building or politicking in order to build relationships at work, those relationships become very vulnerable to, well, they're always very vulnerable to when things go wrong with the work. And ultimately, if the work goes right, the relationship gets better. If the work goes wrong, the relationship gets worse. So the key is remembering what this relationship is all about. It's, it's not, you know, so many people, they try to do their rapport building by shooting the breeze and trying to make personal connections. Now, you know, human beings do that. It's okay. But I always tell folks, you know, you work at the same place. What you actually have in common is this is how you both feed your family. This is your career. You contribute to a common mission. That's a lot to have in common. Build rapport with people by talking about the work, and the work will go better. 
And it's not that you can't be friends. Of course you can be friends, but that's usually a complication at work. The key is recognize that you have to help people set you up for success and you have to set them up for success. And so planning the work and working the plan is so important. And then what I always recommend is a follow-up process, which is essentially I borrowed or learned from, we've done a lot of work with the United States Armed Forces over the last 25 years. My number one client for 25 years is the United States Armed Forces. And so they do a thing called an after action review. And sometimes it's more formal, sometimes it's less formal, but it is part of the culture of relationship building in the military is after action reviews. So after every action, uh, they look at what went great here. What are the best practices and repeatable solutions we want to bank from this experience? And uh, we want to make sure and recognize and reward each other. You know, think about the military. Uh, They don't just say thank you. They give out medals, you know, and if it's not a medal, maybe they'll give out a challenge coin, which is like a medal without an act of Congress. Uh, And then also uh, they look at what went wrong and say, hey, how can we make sure that things go better next time? And then they plan the next collaboration. So it's a very simple three-part process. It's recognize and bank the successes, recognize what could go wrong, and don't finger point and blame and badmouth each other. Sit together and talk about how to fix what went wrong next time and then plan the next collaboration. And when you do that, what you're really doing is focusing your relationship building on the work. If the work goes better, the relationships will keep getting stronger. Do you think these strategies only apply to work relationships? Because it, it seems to, to have broader appeal. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I'm a data junkie and all my data is workplace related. So I think you can test these things out with customers with vendors. Okay. You can test these things out with your family, but don't tell them where you got it. If you do this with your significant others, because I certainly don't need those emails coming to me about how you're using these secret tactics on them at home. (laughs) My wife often says that don't bring the work strategies at home. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, (laughs) your special skills. (laughs) I don't need your Jedi mind meld. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, switch gears with me. You and I, in our conversation, talked about curve benders as these incredible relationships that drive our nonlinear growth and future of work. How do you believe this idea of being indispensable will evolve in future of how we'll work or live or play or give? I think work is is in flux. Uh, everything is in flux right now. I think as much as we were already living in an era of globalization and technology, institutions in a state of constant change, individuals trying to figure out where they fit in that, the information tidal wave, immediacy and the pace of change. And now add to that uh, a global pandemic and people recalibrating everything. We may be facing fairly lengthy depression Um, I don't think the economic fraud has even begun uh, from the COVID shutdowns. We we have no idea uh, what's going to happen with this pandemic. Uh, One thing I know for sure is that we don't know what work is going to look like. So I think as you're, you know, sometimes people look to institutions to be the anchors of their success and security. Uh, I think you're really onto something that human beings are are going to be our anchors of success and security and that relationships of mutual confidence and trust, mutual support uh, are going to be the anchors for people who 
tough it out through these times and come out stronger. People who lift each other up, people who uh, add value and give power to each other. I think that uh, whatever happens to institutions, people are still going to be our anchors. And, and, and as institutions are less and less stable, individuals are going to be our anchors. I, I, I really believe that. And, um, uh, and I think the other thing that's really uh, seems to be changing is that the default presumption of place and work, uh, people, I think the default presumption is shifting to where we work remotely. And uh, the exception is going to be when we work together on site. So uh, people are going to need more savvy and skill to build and maintain these kinds of mutually uh, supportive relationships. You've uh, done some great things over the years. You've written multiple books. You and I talked about curve benders as not relationships that just help you achieve more, accomplish more, do more, but they profoundly change, Bruce, your direction and ultimate destination. In thinking about where you've been and what you've done, you can just use first names, but can you think of one or two curve benders in your life where you can point to being, uh, you know, profoundly in a different direction or different place because of these individuals? I mean, I could go way back to the sixth grade when I had a biology teacher who had us dissect a frog. And once I threw up, I knew I could never be a doctor. I'd have to be something else. <laughs> Not going in that field. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, you know, I went to law school and pretty quickly realized I didn't want to be a lawyer, but, um, I, I probably wouldn't have even gone to a law to a law firm, except that uh, I had a mentor who said, "Well, you know, you should at least try it." So I did that for 428 days, roughly 428. I mean, you know, roughly about 428. Yeah, days. yeah, somewhere in there. I think we, we don't know each other that well yet, but I do think you've probably surmised that I'm somewhat obsessive compulsive. I, I had, in fact, when I was at that law firm. Funny enough, I never would have written the book, Managing Generation X, my first book, if I had not been at that law firm because it was in the 90s, early 90s. And one of the older, more experienced fellows there who was a senior partner, he uh, took a liking to me and he asked me one time, he said, how are you, all the young lawyers now are a bunch of slackers. I don't get it. You know, and I said, gee, Mr. Gates, um, Kim went to Georgetown, Bob went to Harvard, I went to NYU, Ray went to Columbia. Are you sure slackers is the term you're looking for here, buddy? You know? <laughs> and, and, and he said, well, you know, you, you're all disloyal. I mean, when I joined this firm, I would have jumped in front of a bus for this firm. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, you know, you need to adjust your, your, uh, your values. But, um, but he said, you know, you're all disloyal. You have short attention spans. You don't want to work as hard. You demand immediate gratification. You want everything your own way and you want it right now. It's this generation X thing. He said that to me, you know, and I thought, wow, that's so interesting. And I actually said to him, Mr. Gates, if only you knew what we were all whispering about over lunch. And he got really curious and, uh, I set out. So what I set out to do after that conversation was write an article called what your young employees are whispering about over lunch. And that turned into my first book, Managing Generation X. So, I mean, I could give you example after example after example. So in thinking about that role of someone who provides a different lens, a different perspective to kind of where we're going, what we're doing, you have some ideas or thoughts about what would make a good curve bender? Think about people, lives you've impacted. 
Are there some common threads or common things that you've seen or done? Well, I think there's a, a, a level of noticing and observing, taking in soft data, keeping your eyes peeled, not just learning what's on the surface, but being able to read between lines and a sense of generosity and authenticity and courage when it comes to sharing observations and insights and a willingness to challenge people. Uh, I think all of those are elements that I don't think you can help somebody see their challenges, their life and their career differently without those elements. You know, I'm tempted to say it's somebody who has the greatest technical expertise and the deepest wisdom, but sometimes it's somebody who cares enough to pay attention and cares enough to take a chance to share their insight. Are there some things that organizations can do to become an indispensable place that people want to work in and really give kind of more than just their, you know, clocking in and clocking out and, and really go above and beyond, take initiative, do and be their best? I think you have to be able to convince people that serving others is the best strategy for making things better for yourself. And, you know, I call it selfish selflessness or selfless selfishness. You know, look, people go to work because they have to feed their family. People go to work because they have to, usually. Now, some people are fortunate enough, they go to work because they want to. But most people, they go to work because they have to. And almost anybody, when they go to work, they want to make as much money as they can. They want to have as much control over their schedule and who they work with and what they do and what they're learning and their workspace. I think organizations that hold people to a higher standard, organizations that uh, get people organized around their mission, of course, have a big advantage. So we've done a lot of work with special ops men and women. You know, they, they have this best of the best of the best, but you see it in lots of organizations where even if their mission is not sacred, their commitment to the organization, to the work of the organization, to providing services and products to their customers and to supporting each other, it provides a true north for them. But I think that ultimately the key is getting people to understand that the best way to make things better for yourself and others is for you to serve others. Focus on adding value and so organizations have different ways of doing that. Of course, they can do that in their attraction and selection process. They can do that in their onboarding and up to speed training. You know, the military has a little thing called boot camp, works like a charm. Uh, you know, and then, you know, keeping the mission front and center, having leaders highly engaged with your people, setting them up for success, guiding, directing, supporting, and coaching them. I think all of that is necessary. What's the magic formula for organizations? I think when leaders have a service mindset, they bring out a service mindset in their people. Uh, when everybody knows it's your job to find people and set them up for success, give them a chance to serve and build people up and give them a chance to serve, it's an upward spiral. I often tell others that I learn as much, if not more, about my book after it comes out 
because people read it and they they share their comments and ideas and perspectives and and challenge some of your assumptions. I know the book is just coming out, but post writing it, has anything jumped out at you as you know what I need to revisit that, or has anything come out that really reinforces your thoughts around a specific topic? Well, I'll tell you something. You know, I did not write this book for the pandemic, and so. I'm, I'm sort of amazed at how well it fits this pandemic crisis environment. So that's just been a, a surprise and kind of a, a little bit of a head scratcher, but also it's been very much of a relief. And, you know, I'm glad that it still fits and seems to maybe fit better in, a, in, in this crisis time. But I will tell you, you know, I, I try to learn every day. I think I'm learning a lot by doing interviews like this. I've, I've learned a lot from the concepts uh, that I've learned from, from you. And the curve benders idea in and of itself, I think it's transformational because, you know, it makes me want to be a curve bender. And of course, it makes me want to find curve benders. It, it's nice because it's very much, if I understand the theory and the research you've done, the idea is that very often the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts if you approach relationships in the right, right way and, and if you build the right kinds of relationships. I, I take it that's kind of what a curve bender relationship looks like. And so I, you know, I've definitely given that a lot of thought. And certainly because my book is all about relationships, you know, I've wondered if that was a missing piece in my book. <laughs> Love it. So I, I need more friends like you in my life. What's the best way for our audience to learn more about you, your work, and how do they get in touch? You can always go to our website, uh, rainmakerthinking.com. Uh, you can always follow me on Twitter at Bruce Tolgan. You can check out the book at Amazon or wherever books are sold. I'm easy to stay in touch with. Thanks for being a great guest. For those who may have joined us late, you've been listening to Bruce Tolgan, not only the best-selling author of It's Okay to Be a Boss, but a brand new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work. It's a Harvard Business Review Press book. Uh, highly recommended. We'll include it in our show notes and articles. Bruce, thanks for thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for including me. What a pleasure. If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Bruce Tolgan. I really enjoyed reading The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, his most recent book, and recommend you to check it out. Several comments Bruce made during our interviews, as well as key sections I read in the book, really resonated with me about what really sets go-to people apart in how they think and what they do. I'll elaborate on each of these in our blog, but for now, I want you to think about your own efforts. So the go-to people I've certainly met, and again, Bruce's comments in the book and his writing, his research really reinforced this, they really understand real influence. They lead from where they are. 
They know when to say no. They work smart. They finish what they start. They get better and better in collaborating with others. And they promote go-toism. So think about these seven uh, and really think about and read the, the quick little uh, excerpts I have in the blog and really ask yourself, am I doing these things? Am I doing these things consistently? Because that's where being indispensable, regardless of what you do and how you do it, that's what being indispensable at work is really all about. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so you can check them out on our blog at norgroup.com slash blog. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag Curvebenders podcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. 